Support for this podcast and the following message come from Georgetown School of Continuing Studies, offering online degrees designed to fit your schedule. All hours, all Georgetown. Learn more at scs.georgetown.edu. When we say it'll take a moment, or uh, give me a moment, we generally think that that's just a loose, flexible amount of time. It doesn't actually mean anything. It, it turns out it, it's not. Uh, Chad, can you tell us about this? Yeah, that's right. I mean, historically, it actually means 90 seconds. So where does that come from? You know, there's, there's a bunch of different sources that, that kind of claim where that is, but the, uh, the one that I found is the Oxford English Dictionary from about 1398. John of Trevisa, he wrote that there was 40 moments in an hour, hence 90 seconds. And he called, what did he call them? He called them moments? Yes, that's right. So when you think about, uh, before you learn this, when you, think, when you thought about a moment or when you told somebody, you know, just uh, give me a moment, how, how long do you think you were imagining it to be? Maybe 10 seconds? Yeah. Well, let's try this in, uh, in audio terms. So I'm going to say, give me a moment, and then let me know when you think I should have come back, and we'll subtract that from the actual time. Are you ready? Sure. All right. So uh, just, uh, just give me a moment. Working on a night moves. Trying to make some front page drive. Are you still there? Yeah, see, I, pretty quickly I yeah. felt like I should be coming back. That took too long. Yeah, like I'm not on hold with Verizon or something, right? <laughs> yeah, just us. Like, I feel like if Verizon knew that a moment was 90 seconds, that they would take advantage of that and really milk it for the full 90. Yeah, or they would tell you, you know, they'll be back in uh, 12 ounces, which is another measurement of time that comes from the same, same text. Wait, what? 12 ounces? Yeah. The text where it comes from says uh, that each hour would divide it divided into four points, each point into ten minutes, each moment into twelve ounces. <laughs> <laughs> so a moment is is twelve ounces. So it's like yeah. So it's like eight seconds is an ounce. What else? What other things are out there that we don't know about? Um, each ounce is forty-seven atoms. <laughs> <laughs> What does that even mean? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess if you said you could be back in a second, you're you really mean closer to forty-seven atoms. Yeah, yeah. That was that's fun. That's uh, I had no idea. Yeah, interesting stuff. Ah, there was a nice pause. That was like at least sixty atoms 20, there. Twenty-three atoms. Twenty-three atoms. Yep. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Chad. Thanks, guys. Right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Chad Upton has a website. It's brokensecrets.com. This is How to Do Everything. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. On today's show, we'll tell you how to clean your chimney. No one no one cleans their own chimney. But first... You know, you think you know by, by this point in your life. You think you know everything there is to be afraid of. You mean like spiders and we, stuff? Yeah, we know everything to worry about. But it mm. turns out that there's always one more thing. Brent, can you tell us what you've got? Right around Memorial Day, our uh, forecasters at the National Weather Service in Albuquerque started noticing uh, peculiar radar echoes showing up from our Albuquerque radar. So Brent, uh, his name is Brent Wachter. He works at the National Weather Service in New Mexico. And the radar echo he's talking about, basically, if you're looking at a weather map, this is the big green cloud you see that, you know, tells you it's raining. 
But uh, in this case, it wasn't raining. Turns out uh, it was insects, and we just had a pretty decent hatch of grasshoppers, and they started getting bigger and bigger and more numerous, and all of a sudden, yeah, they started showing up in the radar. Well, so what, what were the grasshoppers doing that they were able to show up on radar? Were they swarming? Well, our radar technicians that have gone out to the site have looked up well up in the atmosphere, you know, at least several hundred feet, and he's seeing grasshoppers from what he can tell. Wait, they're, wow. up, they're up way high in the air, the grasshoppers? Yeah, and in order for the radar, so our radar doesn't, it isn't aimed at the ground, so it's not going to detect everything at the ground, but the first slice of energy that's emitted is going to be up around 300, 400 feet above the ground from the radar site, and we've seen these uh, this, these insects and most likely grasshoppers that have gone up as high as 1,500, maybe even 2,000 feet. So it's pretty impressive, and the other thing he noticed when he was out there last Friday or June 6th was that there were hawks that were preying on on the on the insects or probably the grasshoppers. Wait, so so you have thousands of grasshoppers, and as uh, nature takes its course, then you have the animals that feed on all those grasshoppers, and is that yes. is that then what creates the the radar the the bubble on the radar? Yeah, I we we suspect we think it's kind of a combination of of everything, but most likely the grasshoppers. Can, can I ask, uh, I mean, if, if there were some kind of uh, con- confluence of, of a weather event and a grasshopper event, could you, could you get a, a grasshopper NATO? <laughs> I would think so. You know, I, I work the, the fire business, and every once in a while, fire will get wrapped up into a, a dust devil, and we'll call it the fire whirl or a fire tornado every oh. once in a while. So why not have a uh, grasshopper NATO? Wow. How devastating would would a grasshopper NATO be? Probably just as devastating as if uh, you had a whole bunch of grasshoppers in someone's hand and they slapped it onto you <laughs> in your face with them. So. <laughs> Sounds like either one is mostly just bad for the grasshoppers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, thanks for talking to us about this, Brent. You betcha. These days, if you need your chimney cleaned, if you, uh, if some maybe something horrible has happened in there, if you even have a chimney, that's great. Uh, you you call a guy, but it hasn't always been that way. John, can you tell us how they used to do it? Yeah, my my grandfather, uh, he passed away in 2009, um, but he was born in 1916. Um, I don't know exactly when this uh, would happen, but he told me that back in the day there was a guy who would go around with a chicken on a rope to clean people's chimneys out. What? Yeah. So basically he would he would get up on the roof and lower a chicken down into the chimney, and as that happened, the chicken would go crazy and kind of flap its wings, and that would, you know, knock everything <laughs> loose and, and clean the chimney. Well, I mean, what what did that do? I mean, you probably don't know this, but what would that do to the chicken after, like, even one one chimney? Uh, you know, I don't, I mean, obviously it would come out black. That was one thing I asked about. I, you know, I, I did ask what would happen with the chicken, and uh, my grandfather basically said he would do as many chimneys as he could with that chicken, and <laughs> I guess uh, replace it when <laughs> when things didn't work out. I mean, I guess when you think about it, it's uh, it's ju- it's the original feather duster, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. 
And I had Googled it um, once. I, I kind of looked into it because I, uh, I wasn't really sure how true that was. But I did see there were other cases of it. Uh, I didn't see any mention of the rope when I, when I had looked at it. But I do think that's, that's probably a key piece uh, because otherwise you'd just have a black chicken running around your house. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Know? So, so when your grandfather told you about this, did you get the sense that your that this was in his house growing up? That they had uh, the guy come in. Yeah, yeah. And so, what would happen? So the chicken would would they would put the chicken, uh, drop it down the chimney, and then all the ash and stuff would fall into the fireplace. Yeah, it would knock it loose, but a lot of it would also be on, on the chicken. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gosh, wait. I wonder what that was like for the chicken. You know they. No chicken could could conceive that that's what was going to happen to it no, that day. Absolutely not. <laughs> hey, you think he just tells the chicken, yeah, "Put on your leash, we're going for a walk." <laughs> John, this was fun. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. John has a podcast. It's called Super Live Adventure Podcast. It's a podcast. podcast. We heard from Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy says he listens to How to Do Everything when he's in the lab. So we're going to call him up. We're going to call up Jeremy and see exactly what he's doing as he listens to our podcast. Hey, hey Jeremy. Hey, how's it going? So <laughs> so can you explain to us uh, what you do there? Well, so we study the escape response in nematodes. Um, that's, and a, so, that's a nematode? So nematode's a, a, a round worm that lives in the soil. It's about a millimeter long, so okay. small microscopic worms. And in the wild, one of their main predators is this predatory fungus that traps them in these constricting rings. And so the worms have evolved uh, an escape response where when they feel uh, contact on their neck, they inhibit head movements and back up out of the ring and then make a 180 and run away so they don't get eaten. And one of the things that we do to look at this is... um, we whip worms with an eyelash uh, right behind the head. Wait, I'm sorry, what? So we, we take an eyelash, we tape it to a pipette. A human eyelash? Human eyelash, or you can use a paintbrush, fiber, but eyelashes work well. How, yeah. Wait, how did you figure out that eyelashes worked well? Oh, this, is, this has been going on since the 50s. Eyelash whipping? Oh, yeah. All right, so you take, you take the human eyelash. Mm-hmm, and, if, and, if you wish. Yeah, and then, and then what do you do with it? So you put it on a uh, pipette so you can hold it, and then you gently drag it uh, across the, the worm's body right behind the head. And this simulates being trapped in a constricting ring that these, uh, this fungi makes. Now, you, you said whipping, but when you describe it, it sounds more like a gentle caress. Oh, it, you know, I, I've always thought that that's a misnomer. It is, it is a gentle touch. <laughs> so wait, so, but why do you call it whipping, then, and not just stroking? Well, it, it sort of rolls off the tongue, worm whipping. Oh, and yeah. warm stroking is a little suggestive, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, so when you finish up a day at the lab, and you know you're meeting some friends, mm-hmm. they say, "So, what'd you do at work today? What, what do you tell them?" <laughs> so it was a long day of worm whipping. <laughs> and do your friends they they know what that means now, or yes, they they've heard okay. they've heard enough of it. Enough with the whipping, Jeremy. <laughs> it's caressing. Leave, leave those worms be. All right, Jeremy. This ounce of music is for you. <laughs> do you think Jeremy's kind of, like, do you think that the worms look at him as kind of a dominatrix? Well, I think the fact he has a leather 
lab coat. I mean, he's he's asking for it. You, you, you don't need that. It's not. There's not not for safety reasons. Yeah. In fact, it's it's uh it's less safe. The leather and the ball gag. That does it for this week's show. What'd you learn, Ian? I I learned that life used to be uh, a lot harder for chickens. It's pretty hard now. There's one thing that could make it worse, and that's being dropped into a chimney. Probably on Christmas, every chimney gets a a pretty good cleaning. What with uh, Santa's enormous girth wiping down all sides of the chimney. Yeah, it's true, but I don't know how many uses do you get out of Santa before you got to get another one. Yeah, I guess the way it works is the first kid that sees Santa, he's wearing a beautiful red suit. Everybody else, he, he's covered in soot. It's a fat, grim reaper that just came down your chimney. How to Do Everything is produced by Stephen Tobias with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Seth Kelly. Who we were just a second ago whipping with our eyelashes. I wasn't. Justin Witte is our artist-in-residence. You can get us your questions. Send them to howto at npr.org. Our website is howtodoeverything.org. I'm Mike Danforth. And I'm Ian Chillog. This is NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Spectrum Business, who knows small businesses need a great network to succeed. Switch to Spectrum Business and get faster internet and advanced phone with no contracts or hidden fees. Visit business.spectrum.com reliability.